0: You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, Who Were the Pioneers of Women's Pro Basketball? Hello and welcome back to Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann and my special guest today, she is the author of Mad Seasons, the story of the first women's professional basketball league. Uh, Kara Porter, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh,
0: what made you become interested in the story of the WBL and, and made you want to write a book about, uh, about the league?
1: Well, I, I ran across a, a piece of memorabilia, I, th- I think it was a media guide, and uh, was just kind of leafing through it. And I was seeing some names I recognized, like Nancy Lieberman, and, and I was saying, what is I had never heard of this Women's Professional Basketball League. And um, and I thought, I wonder why I've never heard of that. Of course, frankly, even the NBA wasn't usually broadcast a lot in Kansas where I was growing up, but still. And so when I tried to do some research on it on the Internet, I still couldn't find anything on it. So I kind of started going from there and just thought, somebody needs to write about this, and it it went from being an article – to being a book
0: yeah and um you know there's there's so many fascinating aspects to the you know just women's uh, basketball in the decade itself leading to the pro league i mean the uh, the women's game really grew in colleges and in high schools in the 70s after you know title IX passes in 1973 I, i think it's easy to take for granted that uh high schools and college have basketball programs for women's for, for women and for girls but that certainly really wasn't the uh uh the case i mean the um you know the first generation of um of wbl players coming into the league in 1978 A lot of them, you know, really had to didn't come from a lot of organized programs. They really had to make it. You know, if they were really dedicated and really cared about it, they really had to search to be able to develop their skills and to find, you know, avenues to be able to play.
1: Oh, absolutely! A lot of the players had maybe played for possibly a year in high school. Often, it wasn't even on organized teams. Um, If they had any college ball. Sometimes they had to put together their own team, and maybe they would try to get a high school, uh, like a uh, or a, a sophomore, to coach the team. They would have to iron the numbers on their shirts. They didn't have any trainers. They they would have to coach themselves. Sometimes um, here at the University of Utah, if you know, they would play like back to back to back three games in one day, and that was it. That was the season, and. Um, it, so really a lot of them didn't have uh, anything like what we would expect today where you'd have girls at young ages playing and certainly by junior high and then in high school and very sophisticated college programs. It's it's night and day.
0: You, a really important moment for um, the development of women's basketball in the United States is uh, you know with the growth of the college game, there is uh, women's basketball at the 1976 Olympics um mm-hmm. make, making its debut in Montreal and um some some great talent with the US team that year um Lucia Harris of Delta State who was a tremendous college player uh, also Ann Myers who was from UCLA Nancy Dunkel a very young Nancy Lieberman um a Pat head later of course Pat Summit the the, the great uh, the late great coach for University of Tennessee so uh, a lot of talent going on there they the the US women uh get a silver medal against the, the the Russia the USSR was just a tremendous powerhouse in women's uh, basketball really uh, uh, ahead of the curve on that and and had um some tremendous players but that was definitely a great showing for the United States team and was you know a um i, I think part of the genesis of showing that there was something that you know could be called here and in and, and developed even further
1: right the united states had actually shocked everyone by by doing well enough to even qualify. You know, when they actually showed up at the training facility, you know, that they had made it to the Olympics, they weren't they weren't even ready for them. <laughs> Nobody expected them to to do anything um at that point. And then getting the silver was, was fantastic. I mean everybody knew that there was only one possibility for the gold. I mean the star of the Russian team, I believe, did not lose a game for seventeen years. And so and she was just there's never been anything before or, or after like her um but the seventy six team did well. it was kind of if you look at the team photo for that year, it's kind of a who's who in women's basketball at the time, and a lot of people i mean everyone I knew watched the Olympics back, especially back then. remember there wasn't a lot of alternative programming, and so people were glued to the Olympics back then and here we had this. The first time ever that women played basketball in 1976, and then they did well. It was everything that, that anyone could have hoped for.
0: And one of the early stars of um, women's basketball during the uh, 70s was uh, Karen Logan, who had been a, a a college star at Utah State, who had uh, become um, nationally known. She uh, On national TV, she actually beat uh, Jerry West in a game of horse. Um, She also barnstormed with the All-American Redheads, who were a traveling uh, women's barnstorming team, actually uh, had been famous for quite a long time. Yet despite that, you know, was not a nationally, you know, had some national success. But certainly, you know, if she had had the skills that she had and she'd been a man, she'd been a household name. She talks about. I don't know how many years I've spent shooting alone in gyms. I can't think of a woman in my sport who has made anything of herself kind of showing a uh, showing her to be um, a, a bit dispirited about the situation um at the time, but you know was one of the um he was able to kind of be one of the stars that sort of spearheaded the initial uh, formation of the uh, of the WBL. Uh, Bill Byrne, who was the was the founder of the league and uh, had been a World Football League executive, what was kind of the genesis behind uh, forming the WBL?
1: Well, Bill Byrne um, was well, entrepreneur. I think is the word he preferred. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And and he, he just always had something going, you know. I think I'll try this. I think I'll try the, you know, um, an alternative football league. I think I'll try an alternative softball league. And um, and he was aware of Karen Logan, and and a lot of people were actually at the time. She she was really pretty well known. I mean, she, her her um, horse game against Jerry West, you know, was supposed to be reminiscent of the Billie Jean King Bobby Riggs game that had had an enormous audience, including my family, and and it had been a big deal. And she had actually been profiled in, in Sports Illustrated, who just said great things about her. James Michener, who, of course, is a famous author, he actually did a piece on Karen Logan um, for a magazine and and had all of these fantastic things to say about her. She She was just tremendous. And, of course, Bill Byrne would have to reach out to Karen Logan. Anyone would have to if he wanted to form a league. Um, there had been an attempt a, a little earlier, like a year earlier, 1977. It didn't go anywhere. So Bill Byrne thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. He he figured with time Line, a lot of girls were going to be playing, and he was right about that. You know, the numbers were, were skyrocketing. And so he thought you know what, women's basketball, this may be the ground floor. So he, even though most of his friends thought he was nuts, he he went for it.
0: And so the league formed with uh, eight franchises, uh, cost of $50,000 per team, um, debuted in 1978, 1979. The Iowa Cornets, the New Jersey Gems, Milwaukee Does, Chicago Hustle, Minnesota Phillies, Dayton Rockettes, New York Stars, and Houston Angels. Um, mm-hmm. you know, one early issue is that some of the top players of the time, Lucia Harris and Myers and, uh, and, Carol Karol Blijewski, they opted not to join the league. The, the 1980 Olympics were looming and a lot of the players wanted to keep their amateur status for that. Of course, eventually the, the United States boycotted those Olympics, but that wouldn't have been known at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of evident early on that the league sort of lacks organization and that the owners lack money. But the uh, the, the league did begin with all the uh, teams uh, intact in, in from the beginning to the end of the season, which would certainly be an accomplishment for the league in the in future seasons. Uh, and you know, a couple of the, really the top players for the first season were Rita Easterling, who was MVP, um, played for Chicago and uh, Molly Bolin of the uh, Iowa Cornets, who was a machine gun Molly, known for her amazing uh, scoring outbursts. Um, What were um, some of the things that stood out about those two or anybody else in the first season?
1: Um, Well, they they were lucky, I think, to get through the first season. They kind of had to scramble a little bit with one of the franchises. But really, that first season, I, I think, was a relative success. I mean, they did get some grief. For the names of some of the teams, like you just read off the Does. Of course, that was supposed to be a play on the Bucks. You know, they were in Milwaukee, and the Houston Angels and the Hustle, and and some women were kind of offended by the names because they would say, "Well, that the, what are you doing? Those are why are you giving these feminine names to the team?" But and they had trouble selling tickets to women. Interestingly during that period. But the first season itself was, was was really a pretty good one. I mean, Rita Easterling, who was very fast, uh, just kind of a little buzz around the court, and she's someone who could score. You know, she could do 21 assists in a game, uh, no problem. She was, she was very respected. She got beat up a lot. The other teams would kind of – they knew who to focus on sometimes. Um, and Molly Bolin, Machine Gun Molly, uh, the Washington Post – gave her that name because she would shoot early and often and and she had uncanny um, accuracy it was amazing Um she she could just shoot from anywhere
0: yeah, there there's a great highlight reel on YouTube. One of the very very few footages, uh, uh, things of footage of the WBL uh, of one of her you know great scoring games that I recommend anyone listen to this check out because it's really impressive to see um you know her her you, you just had a great form and you know clearly was a great shooter and you know and, and a great scorer and, and a pretty exciting player um in the league she was co MVP in the second season of the league with thirty two point eight points per game. So obviously, quite a um, quite a gunner, and, and you know, it seemed like the quality of play was pretty strong, um, you really throughout. But you, the shooting percentages were pretty similar to um, what was happening in the NBA. You know, you you, you might expect with. You know, um, organized women's basketball on a large scale being still fairly new, there would be it would take a while to develop talent, in, and that certainly would be the case in, in some respects. But uh, you know, certainly there there was some great talent there, and, and some great play, it seems like there was some great play in the league, um, especially in the first season. Uh, um, did you have access to any footage of the league when you were writing the book? Is have you been able to see you know very much?
1: I do. I have I have several games. I uh, my research was pretty extensive and so I got film from WGN and I got um, home video. I, I even still I probably only have maybe a dozen games. I mean, I do have some of the key games. Interestingly, I have I just lucked out and got some of the more controversial games. Um for example the one where the Chicago coach attacked the, the referee <laughs> and the fans mobbed uh, you know then rushed out onto the court I ended up with that game I ended up with the very last game you know the championship game um, so I've got some I've got some good ones and I have some of of Molly and it is a sight to see and, and of course if, if if you've read the book then you know how her career was turned against her
0: she really seemed to pay a price for the just and, and and all the players, I mean, dealt with all these, you know, this terrible travel uh, accommodations in a lot of cases and, um, you know, late, late payments and just, you know, suffering a lot of uh, difficulties in, in just, you know, being a professional athlete and all the travel and just the lack of money that was there. And then, yeah, she really. You you really detail her life her you know the, her time very well and, and talking about the her career being used against her in that uh, divorce case unfortunately and kind of how it tore her family apart and how um you know the the justice system in used in a very sexist way uh, against her being you know more the of the having the more traditional you know career at the time being away and and the way that was used against her to you know to um. To to take the custody away from her, you know, was was very unfortunate. It,
1: it was very interesting, and into, it turned out to be a hugely important case in in Iowa. But just and I, and I have the the trial transcript of that. I was able to get a hold of Molly's lawyer, who, with Molly's permission, gave me her the entire court file, and uh, and it was just fascinating because the exhibits were things like the their their. Uh, media guides etc. and here's the lawyer this is a year after the you know it's all over here's the lawyer cross examining her about her road games and if it had been an nba player who had road games nobody would even have thought anything and here they that they were using that to take custody from her that she had to go to road games in her job uh, it was it was really interesting and and she did ultimately you know prevail in that but it it was a pretty painful experience
0: yeah absolutely um, so one thing that you do a really good job detailing in the book and it's a, it's such a great book and such great research you obviously went into it but one thing is the uh, the sexism in the media coverage of the time of just, uh, you know, you detail so many examples of articles of, you know, there's a sporting news column where, are you uneasy with women's sports? I am. There's this... Um, the whole idea of controversy over, you know, male reporters being in the women's locker room and the, the difficulties involved in that. And just the, the writing columns being written about, you know, men, the, the male columnists writing about like, Oh, you know, being titillated by the idea of going into women's locker room and just, just the really, really gross um, types of things being written about the league. And not, not just the, you know, lack of seriousness that it's being taken. I mean, that's offensive enough, but just the, just the idea of that, you know, these women are just here to be looked at and and offer nothing else. Just that that attitude that was prevalent in that coverage is really, um, it it probably shouldn't have shocked me, but it definitely just the, I guess the blatant um, nature of it really did kind of shock me.
1: Yeah, it's a bit shocking in that the kinds of things that were written about the women and, and the just the concept of women in sports generally would really be surprising if we saw them today. One interesting thing that Karen Logan told me was she said, you know, you, you do have to take into account what the times were in the 70s. It's why it didn't really bother her as much as it should have when she was putting, helping put together the very first team and with her assistance, they were looking for attractive players, you know, and they were looking for players that had certain features and and several teams had certain color ratios that they were expected to follow, and and then and these and the media people, I, I think they were actually often were trying to be supportive. I think, I mean, but I don't think they even realized what it sounded like to say, "Hey, some of these players weren't bad looking." Right. I mean, what message is that? <laughs> what message is that sending?
0: Yeah, right. That's that's a good point. I mean, that yeah, not a, a lot of it is necessarily negative and intend to be negative, but but it's obviously just um, you know the the attitudes are 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 you know in many cases still not good, but um, at least people I think know better than to, to be that blatantly sexist in, in in writing today in sports writing and other things.
1: One of the things I mentioned in the in the book was about the, a, a fan that had sold a collection of his photographs he I think he had front row seats um, online and and I actually was the person that purchased those and when I got them they had some great photos in there but a huge percentage of them were of the posteriors of of some of the players and I just way too many to be coincidental sure I thought well okay yeah
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah, that's that. Wow. Um, so you mentioned, you know, one issue that the the league definitely there was some complaints is the uh, the idea of of promoting um, you know particularly the, the white players uh, ahead of a lot of the uh, black players in the league and the way that you know the. The, the top players like uh you know Janie fincher or you know women who were usually who were, who were often who were white and who were blonde and considered attractive who were promoted there, there was certainly frustrations with that among a lot of people you know just the idea of, of selling sex in the first place and you know why can't it be about the you know the talent of the players in the league but also just um obviously the um the, the league conceding sort of the reality by um by who it promoted and um it reminds me of sort of uh, of the early years of the nba honestly i mean uh, obviously it took a while for the nba to uh to, to fully integrate with uh black players and, and as it became a majority black league there was a lot of angst over whether that would would turn off white audiences and i'm sure that there were similar concerns in the wbl
1: I think that's, well, I know that's true. I I ended up talking to, I think, probably 100 players or and or coaches and or owners. And in the league, you know, for example, if, if they wanted to do a promotion, their first call was going to be to somebody like, like the Young twins, for example. Kay Young, who later actually married Bill Cower, the Pittsburgh Steelers coach, and, and her twin sister, Faye Young. And people wanted them promotional appearances wanted them they were attractive and young and and blonde and 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 even to the point where they would expect them to mispractice to just go do all these things and they and they kind of were like look we want to help the team but we really want to practice and there were and Janie of course you know Janie had Janie Fincher but in the Chicago papers she was so well known that she, they only used the word Janie in in most of their headlines um, you know, Janie scores 52, or Janie traded, you know, that kind of thing. So she was extremely well-known in Chicago, and she had her own poster. Molly Bolin, of course, had Machine Gun Molly had her own poster, which was also used against her in her divorce trial um, as as some kind of, you know, lack of wholesomeness or something. And there were very few African-American players, for example, who ever had any promotional opportunities
0: so looking at uh, the the next season in um in 1980 um a, a big star who joins the league is um ann myers who was the first player to be part of the u.s national team while still in high school the first woman to sign a four-year athletic scholarship for college at ucla and also the only woman to sign a contract with an nba team she had uh, signed a contract with the pacers and had a tryout um in 1979 it was uh, really a subject of of course a lot of interest in in the um uh, unusual uh um events for her trying out for the team and it was definitely something I, i read her book as well and it definitely seemed like a situation where she legitimately thought that she had a chance to make the team but it turned out to you know she was cut on the third day and she felt sort of that she didn't necessarily get a, you know, fully legitimate shot at uh, making the team. And there was definitely a lot of criticism from a lot of people, of course, you know, within the NBA itself and, you know, even within the WBL, which had, you know, was still in its infancy. And a lot of, a lot of the players felt that, you know, this was detracting from what they were doing in the WBL.
1: It was extremely controversial. And it was, I guess it was one time that the men's sport and the women's sports, Kind of seemed to agree um, <laughs> because they were they were all freaking out about it. Um, one thing that Ann Myers told me was basically who who wouldn't if you're given that shot and and there was some guaranteed money with it who wouldn't do it and and I actually when I spoke with a lot of the WBA BL players when I was, was researching the book a lot of them said you know they probably would feel different now than they did at the time but at the time. There was a very clear split. A number of them thought, "What's this thing about women's basketball? That that you're choosing the NBA? You know, what are you, you're betraying your gender, et cetera?" And then there were others who were like, "You know, she's going to make more money doing that." And um, it it was extremely controversial. And of course, people were were all, "Oh, it's a publicity stunt. It's you know, it was." but it certainly got a lot of coverage and then when she got cut and she was going to move into the WBL she already had built in publicity
0: <laughs> yeah and and of course she'd been you know a fairly big you know had gotten a lot of attention at you know UCLA of course which had famously had a great men's program and and certainly would have been one of the more high profile women's programs at the, at the time uh, also mm-hmm. had a national 7 Up commercial with Magic Johnson and had done some um national tv appearances with abc superstars as well where a, a lot of um women athletes at the time were were able to be featured you know that necessarily didn't have the most large prominent sports but that was sort of a platform for um athletes of all different types of uh, sports to be able to you know um showcase themselves and that was uh, you know Im- important for uh, her fame and for helping um get some attention for the league as well
1: it was i mean i think Anybody with a passing knowledge of sports, I think, knew who Ann Myers was, even if they didn't watch uh, basketball. And if they watched basketball after she got on there, they would have seen two things: one, they would have seen tremendous skill. I mean, she had four triple doubles, I believe, in the season that she played. And and things were a little harder then. I mean, they didn't have the, the the moved in, you know, three point line. They were using the same one as the men and all that. So. Um, she was terrific. She would, they would also see her getting mugged a lot because she was always the best player on the team. And so, you know, maybe you'd triple her, team her, quadruple team her, <laughs> you know. But she, because they had to. She was a terrific player. Yeah,
0: and looking at her stats for 1980, the season that she only season she played, she was co MVP that year with Molly Bullen. She had 22.2 points per game, 10.3 rebounds, 5.9 assists, and 4.9 steals. So uh, very versatile in, in terms of her uh, production. Um, but she did not play the 1981 season after she, after there were issues with uh, her not being paid by the team. And um, that was really a common complaint um, among um, a lot of the players. I think you wrote that more than half of the players experienced late or no paychecks in the league and in the 1980 season there was a very large expansion um, you know like almost I, I think from was it 12 teams to 18 teams or it was a it was a very large expansion that did seem you know a pretty unwise thing to do to try you know that like moving really really fast when you're just trying to get a foothold and uh, you know in the consciousness
1: yeah the the expansion was too early and too much and and one problem was that there wasn't necessarily um, as as good a screening of potential team owners as as there should have been in some instances. And in some instances, there were you know I, I've seen, for example, the prospectuses that were put together for the you know franchises, and I'd go, I'd look at them, and I'd go, hmm, that was pretty optimistic in terms of what you expected to sell in terms of you know memorabilia or you know three getting 3000 people per game um, that early hmm. so it it just led to some more problems and and you know franchises would fold and that would create problems people weren't getting paid sometimes the players would get maybe one meal a day that's all they could afford and and maybe their parents would send food and they would share and it was you know and then of course these women that weren't earning a lot of uh, they would they would they thought that Ann Myers and and Nancy Lieberman and some of these others were getting these huge salaries and then they thought they weren't getting paid which they really weren't and so that would it just raised all sorts of issues.
0: Yeah I mean obviously creating you know um, lack of morale and certainly you know uh, some jealousy and and all that and that really reared its ugly head yeah, especially in the third season the, the the minnesota phillies make a uh get a lot of attention in uh march 21st 1981 a a protest by eight players and their coach prior to a game in chicago they walk off the court just before tip off refused to um return and they forfeit the game and then the um The WBO commissioner suspended uh, them indefinitely and they finish out the season using replacement players. And that's sort of seen as a, um, a, you know, as almost a point of no return for the league where it was something that uh, they couldn't come back from. Although, you know, at that point, the finances were, were probably so bad that it's hard to believe they were coming back from that anyway
1: yeah there's some controversy as to whether that killed wbl which is what the commissioner says or whether it was just a sign of what was going to happen anyway i mean it's a it's a stark scene to think about those players sitting in that van and they've been barricaded into the parking lot you know they it's a stalemate and the commissioner's on the bus trying to get them to to come back in and play i mean it's just kind of a, a bad thing they're in new england uh, the New England Gulls had kind of refused to play earlier in, until they were just given the gate receipts, which were not very much, and then they had to pay the refs themselves. So there had been some problems. The, the, the California Dreams had had an incident where they, they didn't have return tickets. They were on a road tri- game, and didn't, they realized that they had not been given return tickets. And one of the players' parents actually bought them all re- return tickets. She didn't even know it at the time. And so there were just a lot of financial problems. One problem, though, is they they actually did have some potential sources of funds. Um, like I mentioned, Marshall Geller, who was behind the San Francisco team, and 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 I've documented this. He he his group had the funds, and they really were uh, going to give the first million dollar contract. You know, the instant the 1980 Olympics, they were going to fly there to Russia, and as soon as it was over. And and the women didn't have to have their amateur status anymore. He was going to present a million dollar check, and they had the funds. I mean, I've seen the documentation, so they had some, but they just couldn't. I mean, the Olympic serve canceled, um, and even Nancy Lieberman, who was the most amazing thing ever, <laughs> um, even she couldn't save a league a league in that kind of situation. Yeah,
0: what what made her such an outstanding all around player?
1: You know, maybe it's because of the, you know, the street ball or whatever she played, but one thing that was remarkable, I mean, I read literally hundreds if not thousands of media accounts. Um, I read letters to the league. I read everything, and and it was just a different world when they were talking about Nancy Lieberman. You'd have some sports writer who either had said really kind of rude things <laughs> about the league or would refuse to go to a game, sometimes they would just put in the column, I will not go to a women's game, and they would just write that in there. And all of a sudden, when they had a chance to see Nancy Lieberman play, it was amazing. It was like, holy cow, that woman could play. And and it was – she was – I mean, I have a theory that – I don't know if it's right or not, but one thing that Nancy Lieberman did was – and I'm quoting someone now, that she played like a man is at least what they were saying about her at the time. Um, she she played aggressively. She was extraordinarily talented. She was quick. She would do clever things. I mean, she would do things that women had never done before. The you know that now are common, but the, you know the redirect or the you know a little bit of the trick pass. You know, a lot of women had never even played basketball you know, in an organized fashion just a couple of years earlier. And here she is doing behind the back or doing, you know, look right, pass left, things that are just expected today. But it just blew people's minds.
0: Yeah, it seems like the league, you know, was shut down right at the point in which there was really, you know, obviously Nancy Lieberman being uh, the, the 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 prime example, but some really great talent, you know, coming into the league um you know carol uh, blaszowski and you know others really were you know adding some really some potential star star power to the league and if they'd just been able to hang on and been able to um you know just give it a few more years or you'd have more realistic expectations about finances or, or what have you it, it may have been the league may have been able to to survive at least it seems that way
1: you know i think that's true i i i think that you had to have enough owners that that could bear the losses because you were going to have losses right i mean you, you i i've read histories of the early nba or of the aba or you know they were going to have losses they needed to bear and they just couldn't do enough of it i mean and even the owners that tried sometimes it was taken out of their hands i mean george nissen the owner of the iowa cornets which was a great franchise and and then he has to essentially ends up given up his team, because when he's over in Iran, they, there's a coup, and the people he's working with are executed, and he barely gets out of the country alive, and and that caused him enormous financial losses, and he basically had to give up the Cornets. They, they, I mean, who would expect that? The, 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 somebody like the Blaze, they could have gotten, I mean, Jals- Carol Blazejowski. If they'd had more time, they would have had some some really awesome teams.
0: What are some of the in doing the research and writing the book? What are some of the most fascinating stories um, that that you were able to write about?
1: Well, and some of them I've mentioned. I thought Molly Bolens was was fascinating. Um, I personally found interesting the whole history of the women's ball i mean it may not seem interesting but i actually took me a lot to piece together how did they even come up with the women's basketball why is it that size you know what what are the differences it's just an interest i mean to me that was one of the most fun things that i did interviewing those people about the baby ball as yeah as they called it um
0: and eventually, that ball that that ball became the ball that was adopted across women's basketball at all levels. It took a while. It took till you know, it took a few years for that to really um, happen. And then there was a lot of controversy over the idea of just playing with a smaller ball and what that said about the you know the a lot of the women feeling like oh it makes us seem inferior by by playing with this ball.
1: And it was interesting because I will bet you that most people have no idea that the reason that we have the women's ball today. Um, is because of the WBL you know they were looking for something different and and they and Bill Byrne was persuaded that smaller hands smaller ball there you go and um, but it was controversial with with women but one of the things that I think Karen Logan pointed out at the time was well wait a minute we we have different you know um, I can't remember if she said shot put or discus or golf, whatever she was pointing out. we Tennis, the lines are different. We already make adjustments for women's physiology, and and, and why not with the ball? But it was still a very hot, hot topic
0: and of course, one of the 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 saddest stories is the uh, that that you write about the, the murder of uh, of Connie Kunzman and uh, the, the the tragedy of the end of her life and how that of course casts a pall on you know all the players in the league who know her and um and the sadness of um it, it being you know quite a bit of time before you know the her whereabouts are actually discovered and they they can confirm that um. You know I- exactly what happened, and, and just what a, um, a you know what what a tragic event that really was.
1: It, it really did. It was something that was mentioned by a lot of the players, whether they were on her team or not. She she was one of the few players that actually played all three years. Um, she had just kind of this gregarious, friendly personality, so everybody knew her and liked her. You know, she was very popular, um, very enthusiastic. And all that, and so for her to first disappear and then have have the individual confess, but for them not to be able to find the body, um, that actually was very interesting to me too. Because her family, of course, was so desperate, they they hired a psychic, you know, to try to help them find her body. Um, and here's the team for quite some period of time wondering, you know, what's happened. I had more than one of them mention to me that that when they knew that she supposedly had been murdered, they uh, they couldn't find the body. And then they would hear noises in their apartment or something and they would, they would freak out. It was, it was very sad. And she was mentioned by many people, um, as somebody they remembered and, and how horrible it was with what happened to her.
0: A a couple of the interesting anecdotes that you write about that are, um, um, uh, that, that I think are interesting is one is, uh, Nancy Welling being traded uh, thirty minutes before a game from the um, for, from Iowa to Minnesota. How that uh, just uh, that's an, just one of those great. Um, you, you know, pro- probably only in the. Usually, when we talk about the ABA, we say the, that's only in the ABA. But well, in this case, only in the uh, WBL. But that's, that's a great. Um, you know, it could only happen then, kind of thing.
1: <laughs> right, I do re- remember that. She, was, she just thinks, oh go now go to the other locker room. So. <laughs> And so there she was. Um, those things were, were were nutty. There were a few other things that are just kind of nutty, like when how how the owners of the Houston team totally freaked out when they found out that one of their key players was pregnant and she's like, That's okay, I'm okay. You know, this it's and and they were like, Uh and they made her sign this <laughs> this big long statement that she wouldn't hold them responsible for anything and, and then they still wouldn't play her because they just couldn't couldn't figure out what to do with the play, uh, with the pregnant player, and there there were some funny some funny stories like that.
0: Yeah, there's a New Jersey player um, who um, when they didn't have the money for her, she went up to the um, to the ticket booth and uh, and and got her three hundred dollars that way. Um, that that that's a pretty good story as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, she just stood there with her palm out and just took the the money from the people. And then there was another. It was a preseason game, and the the team. From New Orleans refused to come, and so they, they the, um, uh, the 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 home team just I believe they just called the the New England players I think it was, no the New Jersey players down, and they just had them I don't know how they got them but they just had them put on some other kind of uniforms probably I'm guessing home or away I can't remember now, anyway and they would just introduce them as if they were really the players from the New yes. Orleans side, yes. you know so here's this this you know very short Caucasian woman being introduced as a very large African-American woman. And it was pretty funny.
0: Yeah. Uh, So what do you see as the WBL's ultimate legacy?
1: Um, I think it's a couple of things. A a lot of the women who played in WBL went on to have significant influence in, in basketball. You know, they went on to coach, Um, One player went on to become president of the WNBA, uh, Donna Giles, who was later Donna Orender. And so they learned a lot, I think, from those lessons. Interestingly, I have been called by um, owners uh, or potential investors in the WNBA uh, just to kind of sort of pick my brain a little bit about maybe what some of the other owners would have done differently now you know and and like there's the debate do you go with the small venue that maybe seems less big time or do you go with the the glamorous venue you know so I've actually had calls from from those types of individuals and there are people who of course still remember uh, the game and more important but a few years ago I started uh, hearing from people whose parents whose mothers Played in the wbl and and they are so proud of that you know some football players basketball players it's really fun to be watching tv and have somebody you know be watching a football game or some basketball game and have them talking about a player and then saying well of course his mother was a fantastic basketball player you know i mean this is the first generation we're getting that
0: and that's obviously you know uh, it's, it's really great that there are you know quite a few of the wbl players were able to have you know uh, important roles in the wnba and, and and how that was able to to spread the legacy maybe, maybe even if the the exploits of the wbl itself aren't really that well known just the fact that you know it was able to at least accomplish that even if you know it, it didn't work out very well as a pro league um you know that that's certainly something that um is quite uh, obviously a, a positive influence.
1: I think so. They learned pe- the people learned a lot. I mean, a lot of the people involved with that league may went on to e- even coaching in men's leagues and things like that and they they did learn things like what rules maybe should be adapted for the women's game or uh, you know, they just they just learned a lot and of course the ball is a lasting legacy and you know, I I think it 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 may not have lasted very long, but it um, I think it did have an impact, and I think it it made things better for women's basketball.
0: One thing I forgot to ask about, I have to ask about before we go um, the uh, the California Dreams players being sent to Charm School. Could you uh, tell that story?
1: Oh yes, they were sent to the the Charm School. I think it was called John Robert Power. Uh, School of Charm, and they learned how to set a table and they learned how to walk with the appropriate posture and balance and they learned how to put makeup on. And they were, the owner was roundly criticized by that. It was a blistering cartoon in Ms. Magazine, for example. And, you know, the owner says, hey, I was just trying to give them a little bit of training. Uh, Like you get, right now, Olympic athletes actually get media training you know to to learn how to interact he says i was just trying to do some of that but uh he he gets a lot of grief for yes. that
0: yeah. well it's definitely something that's you know straight out of league of their own you know um so it just reminded me of that very much um but that's just uh, obviously another illustration of just the attitudes of the uh, time and um it just uh just kind of the, the ridiculous things that uh you know these athletes uh, had to go through to um you know, to be pioneers and just the you know the sacrifices they they were able to make to um, you know, really help uh develop the game and to, you know, pass it on to the next generation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't happen today. I don't think. Yeah, I don't
0: think so either. So, uh, is there anything else you'd like to bring up before we go?
1: No, I just, I just really appreciate the, you know, the opportunity to talk about the WBL. It, it doesn't get its due, um, and so this, this, I've appreciated this opportunity.
0: Well, you're very welcome, and thank you so much for being on the program. And uh, for listeners, definitely highly recommend uh, checking out uh, Mad Seasons, the story of the first women's professional basketball league. And, uh, And Kara, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, th- and everyone, of course, thanks for uh, checking us out. You can find us um, on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you uh, listen to your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at OberandBackNDA. So thanks again for listening, and we're back again soon.